I thought last week Matt Murphy did a tremendous job bringing the message. It was so good. And so thank you, Matt. And uh, um, he, he talked about these uh, the, the very important, significant verses in chapter 12 in the book of Matthew. Of course, we're going through the book of Matthew together. And, uh, and it was a, it's a controversial moment where the Pharisees are, are really uh, scrutinizing uh, Jesus and his disciples. And so as the story goes, just a real quick little recap, and it'll set us up for our message today. Um, there was, uh, there was Jesus, a few of his disciples traveling, walking through a wheat field and, uh, and the disciples were obviously hungry. And, uh, so they started popping the, the, the kind of the top, the heads off of, uh, wheat stalks. And, uh, and they would take that and kind of, you know, do this with it to get all the, the, the chaff off and, and then eat the little wheat bud. And uh, that was just a little snack. It was like corn nuts. It was like popcorn uh, on their journey. Now, uh, before you think, man, what are they doing just taking some stranger's crops and eating them? This was uh, a common practice. This was actually a principle that was uh, instituted by law where uh, and it was a really great idea to provide food for people who were hungry and in need. And so uh, there was this idea of gleaning is the term uh, where you could, anyone could go through another person's crops and eat if they're hungry. And so that was encouraged, that was allowed, that was fine. So they weren't like vandalizing or stealing. This was something that was quite permissible. And and uh, the, the, the rule was, though, you couldn't come, like bring a sickle and baskets and stuff and store up for later on. But what you needed for the moment, what you could carry, what you could eat in the day, uh, you, could, you could glean from those crops. And so um, now there was Pharisees observing this. Now, how, how Pharisees saw this, they were stalking the disciples like cheetahs in the wheat field and just waiting for them, just waiting to pounce uh, on them and, and bring the, the, the rules and regulations to the table. Uh, I have no idea why they were there or what they're doing. I have no idea what's going on here. But they caught them red-handed, and, uh, and so they, uh, they basically cite the law. Say, you can't do that. No, no. Uh, now, the truth is, the law would say, uh, the, old, the Old Testament, the law would say, now, of course, you had the law of God that was given through Moses, and then you had the oral law that uh, the religious leaders would add to the law and develop as add-ons and addendums, and, and so they kept expanding the rules and regulations, what it meant to be uh, someone who was a person of faith. And so the law would say, you cannot, on the Sabbath, you cannot uh, harvest, you cannot thresh wheat. You can't, you, can't, you can't cut the wheat down. You can't uh, uh, remove the chaff from the wheat. And so that would be a big process that is, is work. And, so, and also you can't prepare a meal. Uh, you would have to prepare the meal the day before in order to eat it on the Sabbath. And so you can't actually prepare the meal on the Sabbath. And so this is how far they're stretching the law. They counted taking the, the tops of wheat and doing this as preparing a meal. And then they, they counted this, or they counted this as, as threshing and working, and then popping it in their mouth was preparing a meal. It's a little extreme. 
so they're really they're trying to take the law and stretch it as far as they can to make these people guilty. Now Jesus cites two references. He's like, first of all, your priests in the tabernacle they work all day long. So if we're talking about preparing meals, these guys are making sacrifices. They're building fires, which they're not supposed to do on the Sabbath either, and they're doing these things uh, for God, but they never stop working on the Sabbath. So let's let's get one thing straight. Everybody's, your guys are working too. And then he talks about the story of David, who is traveling, similar situation, traveling with his guys, uh, some of his, his followers, and they get hungry. And so they go to the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there was a, a table that was right outside the Holy of Holies that was always there and always had 12 loaves of bread on it. Now, 12 loaves probably representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, of course, 12 is a significant number throughout the Bible. You had 12 loaves of bread that were always there. And they would be called the, the, the bread of presence. Uh, they would be called, some, some translations of the Bible call it showbread. And so uh, showbread sounds like it's, it's in a, like a dog show. They kind of, they walk the bread around and, and someone checks the, and inspects the bread. This bread is best in show. And so, uh, so you had 12 loaves of bread. Now the priests in the temple would eat the bread that was previously prepared on Sabbath. And then they would replace it. And so these loaves of bread were specifically for the priest. Uh, David's guys are hungry. He asks the priest, he said, my guys are hungry. Can they eat this bread? Because we can't go making more stuff. It's Sabbath. And so the priests say, yeah, go ahead and eat. And so Jesus brings it up and he's basically saying, okay, you as religious folks are really looking to uh, uh, create a wedge in between uh, the rules, the regulations, the traditions and people. And so there's a division there where I would rather be right than do what's right. And Jesus is calling them on that. He's saying, guys, you've getting, you get so locked in and obsessive about your little checklists, you're forgetting about who the checklist is for. Uh, he, he, says, uh, he says, listen, God didn't make you for the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath for you. In fact, the whole, the whole point of this conversation is to say that Jesus himself is the Sabbath. It's not a magic day. It's Christ. He is our finished work. He is our rest. It is Jesus. He's our Sabbath. And so we live in a place of rest because of his finished work. And so uh, this, kinda, uh, this leads into what we're going to talk about today. And so this idea of division and dividing and how uh, religious people, human beings in, in general like to divide and section off and compartmentalize. And Jesus uh, tackles this with another complaint that he gets. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 25. Uh, this is kind of a dramatic scene and, uh, and gets a dramatic response from the re- religious leaders. And so this is how it goes. Matthew 12, 22. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him, so that the mute man then spoke, and he could see. Now, all the crowds were amazed, of course, and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard of this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, 
And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to him, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Very dramatic scene. Uh, A man who was demon-possessed, as if that wasn't enough, he also could not see or talk. And so he obviously did not decide, I need to go see Jesus. This isn't the woman with the issue of blood who's desperate. This is a man who is out of control, and he had friends who were willing to basically take him to Jesus to hopefully see some resolution. Of course, Jesus immediately heals him, restores him. The guy is good. He can see. He can talk. The demons are, 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 are cast out. It's amazing. And the Pharisees see this happen. They watch Jesus do something that they could never in a million years do themselves. Something that is impossible, incredible, remarkable. And this is their reaction. This guy could only cast out demons because he is himself Beelzebul. Uh, Some translations would say Beelzebub. Now, this is a term that would be a kind of a derogatory slang term for Satan. And so they're saying he cast out demons. Could it be mm, Satan? Um, And so Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. So so this derogatory term, slang term about the devil. And so they're saying, obviously, if he's casting out demons, he himself is a demon. It's perfect sound logic, right? Makes total and complete sense. Now, Jesus could have easily just casually brushed this off and said, you guys are out of your minds. And uh, that's silly to say. But he doesn't. He takes time and he, he gives this response. And this whole week, I was increasingly um, fixated on this response because I realized something. Jesus is, is giving, he's opening this spiritual playbook in front of all of us. The reader, the listener, he's, he's showing us in this moment, in this, this kind of simple response, he's, he's showing us how things really work. Now, we, we are doing our best. You and I, we're doing our best with what we have here in the natural world, uh, keeping our head above water, trying to problem solve, trying to grow and, and, and achieve and expand and dream and pursue and all the things that we have to do in this world to make life livable and to succeed at whatever, whatever succeeding looks like for you. Uh, but the Bible says that this stuff, what we can see, what we can touch, what, what we can feel, is our shadows. They are not the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. There is something that is eternal, that is supernatural, that is beyond what we can see, touch, and feel, that is actually eternal, and it is the real thing. So in a sense, we are doing our best here on planet Earth, and we're sort of like shadow boxing. Trying to manage and maintain the natural sense, but what really is substantial is the supernatural. Now, I think most people live and think as if uh, this is the real life, this is the real world, this is, this is the substance. And then whatever is spiritual, whatever is faith and belief is peripheral to the real world. 
when the opposite is true. I've said this many times, but we are not natural people having a supernatural experience. We are supernatural, spiritual people having a natural experience. So we are first and foremost spiritual, and what is substance and real life and affecting everything is actually spiritual. And what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm going to open up the spiritual playbook to you and show you how things actually really work in a spiritual sense. So this is so important to consider, to understand, and I just want to take time today and focus on this statement. As the kingdom, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself cannot and will not stand. Now, we've heard this phrase before, famously Abraham Lincoln said of uh, during, uh, as the Civil War was happening, as it was ramping up. And so uh, there was so many people who were looking to end and abolish a horrible evil that is slavery. And so he was saying that, listen, we, we're, if we're fighting about this, if we're fighting over this, if we can't get to some common ground, a house divided cannot stand. So a lot of people credit that quote to Abraham Lincoln because they don't, they, they don't take the time to look who he was quoting. And so uh, he was quoting Jesus. So Jesus is stating something that is spiritually true. He's saying in a spiritual sense, a house divided cannot stand. It can't happen. So he, uh, he, he's, he's kind of opening our eyes to the tactic, the MO of attack towards believers. And this is, in fact, the enemy's MO is to divide and to conquer division. We see this from the get-go, from Jump Street. We see Genesis chapter 3, when the wheels fell off and, and the, the fall, the fall happened in the garden. What, what, was, what was the scene? Well, the enemy divided, separated Eve, even from Adam, and, uh, and, and started playing mind games and playing word games, using uh, alternate truths and changing, and it's just semantics, right? But changing perspective, changing perception, and, and appealing to an insecurity and even a desire to be more than she is. And so he divides and conquers. Eve was tempted then to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and the Bible says that if you eat of this tree, you will know right and wrong. And the translation would say you would know good and evil. But, but in the truest translation, the truest interpretation of what's being said is that you will be able to determine and decide what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. You state it. You said it. You decide. In other words, you become like God. That's the point. And that was the temptation. And that's what Adam and Eve fell for. The, the, the power to define what is right, what is wrong. To basically decide what is good, what is bad, what, is, what, what I think is right. Genesis obviously begins, the whole Bible begins with this statement, in the beginning. It's a good place to start, I guess. In the beginning. Now, if you fast forward to 
the book of John, the gospel of John, the book of John starts with the same phrase in the beginning. And there's a purpose behind that. And it's because this is the divine reset button. This is a start over. This is a begin again. This is a new day. This is, this is God through his own personal sacrifice, his own move towards us, not our move towards him. His move towards us, for God so loved the world, he made a move in order to make right what was made wrong in the garden. So this is what it says in in John chapter 1. In the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word was God. So then it goes on to say, and and if if you skip down, I think, to verse 14, uh, it, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father. So it's talking about Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. So John chapter 1 captures God's move towards redemption and, and making right what we made wrong. And so this is the contrast I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to see. In the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word was God. Now, the word here means truth. It's the gospel. It's reality. It's ultimate, actual truth. True north. And that word, truth, became flesh. So God's move towards us was, uh, I'm going to become like you. The, the, the focus in the the... the, the the obsession of Christianity has been in the past becoming like God. But the real focus and significance of Christianity is that God became like us. But let me show you how we flip this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh. So what Eve Adam and Eve did was to say, I want to become like God. And so, in essence, flesh was trying to become the Word. Humanity was trying to define and become ultimate truth, as opposed to ultimate truth becoming like us. Now, It's a tragedy that the fall happened, but the greater tragedy, I believe, is the fall continues to happen every single day. We all compromise in the same way. I've had these kind of simple spiritual conversations. I remember having these in youth group a lot. Man, if Adam and Eve never fell, we would be still in the Garden of Eden and riding dolphins like jet skis. And we'd still, you know, be able to ask a cheetah to bring us a a wild cherry Pepsi. Like... Come on, bring it to me. And, and it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a simple thought, right? If the fall never happened, we'd be living in, in paradise. But for Adam and Eve, paradise wasn't enough, and so they wanted to become like God. Now, now that is a tragedy, but it's, it's kind of silly to think that we wouldn't also fall. Every person after them would have fallen too. We all do this continually. We actually have the, 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 the playbook. We see what happens, and we see what not to do, and we still do it. We all try to be, make the flesh become word. 
We all try to be the arbiters of truth. We all think that our opinion is the gospel. We all do. I posted something the other day, and it was, I was just being silly, but uh, it, it kind of had its roots in this conversation. But I posted something the other day, and I said, uh, things that I will never conform to. Uh, and I think number one was saying the phrase, let's go. Uh, it's a social contagion in the same way that the word literally coming up, literally in every conversation, literally a hundred times. It's a social contagion. It's not natural. It's caught. It's like, a, it's, like, it's like catching a cold. You just catch it. And so socially, we've caught this idea of like when, when something, you, you're really excited about something, let's go. And it's just a mindless ex- exclamation. And so I, I pride myself on never saying that unless it's sarcastic and, and talking funny about it. Uh, I talked about never eat, drinking any milk that doesn't come from a cow. I don't want, you can't milk an almond. I don't know how you do that, but uh, get out of here. Get out of town. And so I talked about all the things that I will not do. And then I ended the conversation, my self-righteous, sanctimonious rant that I'm better than these people by saying I will do everything in my power to love them. I ultimately, here's the thing, disagree with people. It doesn't make you right. Me not liking almond milk doesn't make my opinion any valid, uh, any more valid than anybody else's. The fact that you drink almond milk, it, you might get to heaven, that's all there is. God's like, what, what are you doing milking these, these bovines? Come on, the almonds is where it's at. Oat milk, I don't know how you milk an oat. That's very difficult. That's amazing. It's a talent. It's, a, it's supernatural. It's spiritual. It's something, it's a miracle to milk an oat. I should celebrate that with you, but I, I don't. But the, the, the reality is, and at least I admit it, I think I'm right. We all do. And we kind of relate to Eve in that sense that we all believe we can sort of, we can actually set the precedent to say what is right. So the flesh becomes the word. In my own infinite wisdom, I define truth. I decide what's right and what's wrong. And the focus is me becoming like God. As opposed to the actual real focus of this life, God became like me. He took my place. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now I want to focus on that statement. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, The message translation puts it this way. Uh, God moved into the neighborhood. Um, he began to inhabit uh, this world and, and, and enjoy the presence of his people to commune with us. So the flesh became word, and then man hid himself from God. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The flesh became word and hid and separated and went off to the, by themselves. You see the two results of the two belief systems and the two paths and the two approaches towards self-salvation versus imputed righteousness, God's salvation. God dwelt among us, brought us together. We fell. We made this about us. We separate. If you skip down to verse 30 in chapter 12 of Matthew, this is just a couple verses after what we just read. This is Jesus 
making a statement. He's planting a flag and saying, this is, this is, these are the two sides, right? He who is not with me is against me. And that person who is against me, who does not gather with me, scatters. He says, if you're with me, you gather. If you're against me, you scatter. You're divisive. You're divisive. You, you divide. You scatter. You separate. You compartmentalize. A house divided cannot stand. There is a, um, a clear picture of a joining together in unity and a division separation. A dividing. Jesus came in order to become the common ground for us to unite on. He, he became the connective tissue to join us to him and each other because no other ground will do. This is the reality. God is not looking for us to level up in terms of our intellectual pursuits. His, Jesus' prayer is not, God, make them smarter. God, make that one person, individual, by himself, right. This is what he prayed. This is John chapter 17, verses 22 through 24. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one. Just as we are one, triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. I and them, you and me, that they would be perfected in unity. So that, now the purpose behind this is not just because when my mom used to say to my sister Charity and I in the back seat, stop fighting, she's just trying to keep the peace and, and not, you know, wreck the Buick because we're being silly. Uh, This is not Jesus just saying, be quiet back there, trying to keep the peace. There's a reason. He says, I want them perfected in unity so that the world may know, comprehend, understand, see that you sent me, that the word became flesh, and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, desire that they also, whom you have given me, Be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. To know, to understand, to comprehend, to to enjoy, to experience the extravagant love of God through Christ. This is his prayer that we would become one because as we become one, as we find the common ground that is Christ... And it's only Christ. And this is, might be a little uh, controversial. Not what you think of Christ. Not the minutiae, not the, the, the interesting theology that you have. Not the collection or the, the concoction or the, the cocktail of, of beliefs that you've acquired over time. It's not even what you think of God, but who He, Him, the person. That you know the person. That is actually a message and a light to the rest of the world that 
that God made a move towards us to save us, that he loves us. John chapter 12, just backing up to a couple chapters in the book of John, John chapter 12, verse 47. Jesus says this, I didn't come to judge the world. It's like Leatherface out there. I didn't come to judge the world, but I came to save it. So you have on this, 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 this one little kind of balance, the scale. You see one side, I didn't come to judge or exclude, I came to include. I didn't come to disqualify, I came to qualify. I didn't come to scatter, I came to gather. It's, it's God's will that none should perish, that all should come to know God through Christ Jesus. Hey, hey, Dad, can you, can you go encourage? He probably already has. Knowing my dad, he's out there talking to... Yeah, can you go encourage leaf blower guy that, that God's moving in here and he shouldn't be? It's the wind of the Holy Spirit. Um, this world, if you've not noticed, this world is bent on division, dividing and compartmentalizing and, and creating silos and, and, and categories, categories, I'll call them. And, and there's hierarchies. There's better thans and there's lesser thans. There is uh, worthy and there's unworthy. There is, there's together and untogether. And then there's, there's all these different opportunities for her to say, well, you grew up this way. You're from here. I'm from here. I think this way. You're this way. You're this denomination. I'm over here. And we look for everything, even just, just as something as simple and as trivial and as shallow as how a person looks. We look at a person and say, you belong here. And we look in the mirror and say, I belong here. Humanity looks for every opportunity possible to divide, to categorize, scatter. This is Galatians chapter 3, describing God's perspective. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Wait, these are things that I would normally conveniently categorize people and judge them by the category they fit in. And, and here's the scripture saying, no, that's not, that's not the perspective of heaven. That's not a spiritual perspective. That is a natural, humanistic, trivial, shallow perspective. That's not God's perspective. One in Christ. Now, that's God's point of view. I, I want to talk about how that walks, how that lives out practically. This is Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 through 17. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Raise your hand if that's you. Just raise your Just simple question. Holy and beloved and that you are uh, uh, chosen by God. Raise your hand if that applies to you. Me too. You put on like a coat, slip into a heart of compassion Heart of kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with one another, forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you should also forgive others. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, if you back up to John 17, 
that Jesus' prayer is that we be perfected in unity. What is the perfect bond of unity? Love. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom and teaching and admonishing, love one another uh, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts with, to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Put on these qualities. Put on love, kindness, patience. Put on forgiveness. Put on these qualities, not because they benefit you, but because they benefit the people around you. These are unselfish qualities for other people and their betterment. This is for the purpose of others. Put these things on. And then he goes on to say, prioritize the gospel. Prioritize hearing it, talking about it, reading it. Prioritize the truth, the word. Prioritize that. And then it says, prioritize worshiping together. That's what today's all about. We hear the gospel, we worship together. This is us doing exactly what's called of us. Love is a perfect bond of unity. Love also covers a multitude of sins. In other words, love is bigger than our mistakes. It's the great command. It's the motivation behind everything we're supposed to do. Let everything you do be done in love. It's how we're meant to be rooted and grounded. The Bible says be rooted and grounded. Let your roots go deep into his love. Speaking of be rooted and grounded... I'm wrapping up here. Jesus speaks directly to building our lives upon a common ground. Building our lives upon a foundation. On him alone. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says it. In, uh, in, he talks about building our lives on a common ground, a foundation. And he, he brings it up again in Matthew 16. Real quick, I'll read the, the, one, the part in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine... And acts on them, believes them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against that house, yet it did not fall. It had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine, does not act on them, does not believe them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell, floods came, winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell. House divided, fell. And great was the fall. Then you, then you go to Matthew 16. I don't have that slide up, but uh, it just says this very simply. Upon this rock, this is his statement to Peter and his disciples. Uh, the rock of revelation, understanding, seeing Christ for who he is. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So building our house, building his church, same thing. Same conversation. Jesus? Um, same conversation. In fact, uh, Psalm 92 says this. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord, they will prosper. They will, be- they will bear much fruit. That is to be rooted and grounded in the commonality of Jesus. Now, how does Jesus work? He's the body. Or we're the body. He's the head. This is the body of Christ. Uh, He is our tabernacle. He's where we 
dwell. This is, this is Christ. This is, we are one in him. is one body, one sacrifice, one baptism, one, one salvation, one redemption, one in, once and for all, one sacrifice. We are in him. We embody him. We are grafted into the vine. Abide in him together. After this, the scribes and the Pharisees began to demand a sign. Show us a sign. Prove that you are who you say you are. Show us evidence. And he says, the only sign you need is the sign of Jonah. It's a random reference. He says, you guys know Jonah. Now, he talks about Jonah not as a children's story or as a myth or a fairy tale. He talks about Jonah as a historical reference. This happened. And he's, he's talking about, obviously, the, the resurrection. Jonah spent three days in a fish, then bleh, was puked out. In the same way, Jesus will be dead three days, and then he will be resurrected. This is also, underneath that obvious interpretation, if you know the story of Jonah, Jonah was a guy who just hated Ninevites, hated them. Like a Republican hates Democrats and like Democrats, Democrats hate Republicans. Jonah hated Ninevites. Hated them. To the point where God himself said, Jonah, I'm going to save them. I'm going to redeem them. I just need you to go there. And he said, heck no. I would rather them burn in hell than take time out of my day to go let you do what you do. Jonah did not go because he believed God at his word that he would and could save them. And so he said, I'm not letting that happen because they don't deserve it. He was that angry. And he probably had every right to this. this is, these are sworn enemies of the, of the Jewish people. This was people that massacred them, who railed against them, that hated them. He said, they don't deserve heaven. They deserve hell. So Jesus' reference to Jonah is, is deeper than just the belly of the whale thing. He's saying, guys, I, I know that there's times that we're judgmental and critical and that we just, we have enemies. We have divisions. We have arguments. We, we get offended. Somebody offended us. Somebody hurt our feelings. We disagree with someone that, on something that we think is a deal breaker. And what's God's move? He was unrelenting. He would not let Jonah off the hook. <laughs> Fish hook. Get it? Fishing reference. Silly. Sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Uh, he, he, was, he was chased him. Chased him. And ultimately, he did. And exactly what, happened, what he said was going to happen, happened. The Ninevites came to know God. But it wasn't because Jonah was faithful. It was because God is. Jonah, the, we leave the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, with Jonah uh, pouting on the beach. But I didn't want him to get saved. And then he's like, well, at least I got this plant for the shade. And then God sends a worm and kills the plant just, <laughs> just, to, just to make sure Jonah sees things clearly. Uh, God is a gracious God. <laughs> so... We end the story with, with Jonah grumbling and, and, and complaining because God did exactly what he was going to do. But here's the deal. God's heart is unrelenting for all to know the love of God. 
he is unrelenting with that cause to show everyone, especially the people you can't stand, he wants them to know how much he loves them. And sometimes it feels like in spite of us, but that's just who he is. Because the truth is, we're all that person somewhere to somebody. (laughs) I wish I could say that everyone loves me and everybody's rooting for my success. Uh, I would be a bit delusional to think that. But I do know one thing. God loves me. And God is for me. So if God's for me, who can be against me? So what do I want to do? Do I want to return the favor and say, well, then I'm going to wish harm on you because I don't like you and you don't like me? Or do I do what Jesus says and pray for those who persecute me and love my enemies? Here's the, here's the, the reality. There are a million reasons to disconnect, to divide. There's a million reasons to separate. There's a million reasons to isolate. There's a million reasons to back off, to say, I, I'm busy. I got a lot going on with me right now. I can't really be connected, uh, rooted in the house of God. I can't really be connected to the body of Christ. I can't really spend time loving and serving in that community because I, I, this is me time right now. There's a million reasons to disconnect, but one really good reason to fight for connection, to fight for community, to fight for unity, to fight for the common ground of Christ. And that is because that's who Jesus is. That's his heart. That's his mission. Make them one. Abide, remain, work through it. The glory which you have given me, I've given them, not that they, that they may be one, just as we are, I and them, you and me, they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me, love them, even as you loved me. The mission, the heartbeat of Christ, that we, through thick, through thin, through complications, through divisions, through offenses, we fight we fight to be a part of Jesus. Says, I will build my church. We, we fight for the opportunity to engage in that pursuit. There's one set of blueprints, and they're not mine. They're his. And we engage in that. Everybody wants to go to something that, that they like. No one wants to build something. No one wants to be a part of the building, the, the humble beginnings, the engaging, the, 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 the footers being poured. Everybody likes picking out paint colors. No one likes pouring footers. And Jesus is saying, I'm doing something here. I'm building something here that is so much bigger than denominational lines. That is so much bigger than your, your theological perspective. That is bigger than that. That is Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I've determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's all I got. Jesus is the common ground. Jesus is the solid rock. Jesus is the foundation. He is the word. He became flesh. We are united in him. And the truth is the reverse of the statement, a house divided can't stand. The reverse is true. A house united will not fall. The gates of hell can't overpower it. We are one in him. Let's think like it, act like it, live like it. And let's pray that God continues to engage our hearts with his and each other's as we walk this out together.